0: Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Tafiq. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. My dear Roots of the Spirit community, thank you so much for coming together to be inspired by today's guest, Lee England Jr. The interview I conducted with him took place about a week ago, so the tail end of March. And in such trying, tumultuous, frightening times, his message of perseverance and going for your dreams and inspiration is so uplifting, and so I couldn't be happier to have had this conversation and also be able to share it with you. I had the golden opportunity to meet Lee England Jr. last fall when he was performing at an event in New York City that I attended, so you'll you'll hear about that in our conversation, but I just wanted to set the tone that it is very serendipitous and that in this moment of, honestly, I don't even know how to put it into words. But let's just say that the timing of this interview, for me personally, was so right on time because I was infused with such an energy of joy and excitement and inspiration. So I'm so excited for you to be able to hear his story as well. And his music. I have to say thank you so much to him as well as his management for allowing me to play some of his absolutely extraordinary music. So you are in for a wonderful treat. Endorsed by Michael Jordan, signed by Quincy Jones, and supported by the likes of Sean Diddy Combs, Lee England Jr. has without a doubt paved a unique path as a violinist. Although he is classically trained, he is acclaimed as the soul violinist due to his stylistic blend of R&B, hip-hop, and soul. In addition to his mastery of this instrument, he adds viola, cello, bass, guitar, drums, piano, and voice to his arsenal of sound, allowing him to transcend artistic boundaries of traditional violinists. In 2009, England cut his elementary school teaching career short to pursue his passion for music by auditioning for MTV's Making His Band. Captivated by his extraordinary talent, the judges quickly changed the policy of the show to allow, quote, non-traditional instruments to be considered. As a result, he landed a spot on the show as the sole violinist. Diddy named him the band's Secret Weapon, and after gaining recognition from the show, he appeared as a guest performer on Jimmy Kimmel Live, The Monique Show, performance in concert with Stevie Wonder and Babyface, in addition to opening for rappers Ludacris, Trey Songz, Jermaine Dupri, and Akon. His journey began to grow and expand, and along that journey, he performed at the 2010 All-Star Weekend for Michael Jordan, And as a result, he loved him so much that he offered him an endorsement deal with the Jordan brand, making him one of the first non-athletes to be sponsored by Jordan. And then he just kind of like exploded on the scene and there's so many other awesome adventures. One other thing I'll mention is that he has spent a considerable amount of time as a street performer, and he has met and gathered a talented group of musicians to create what he calls the Soul Orchestra emphasizing his belief in the power of the collective. He regularly performs with his orchestra and continues to educate children through his nonprofit Love Notes, LLC. At the current moment, he's writing for his debut album, which reflects his addition of vocals, creating a completely new sound. You are in for a treat. Please stick around at the end. I'm super duper grateful to Lee and his management team for granting me permission to play his new song from the album, Accused of Love super grateful it is my honor to introduce you to lee england jr welcome to the roots of the spirit podcast lee it's an absolute honor to have you on the show
1: it's a pleasure it's a pleasure to finally be connected
0: thank you so much so just to kick off the conversation first and foremost okay so these are trying times for everyone not just in new york not just in the u.s but around the world I feel as though this is a very unique time and everyone is kind of looking for inspiration
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and fortunately we have the privilege of technology. People have been partying online and (laughs) communicating and doing all types of creative things to try to uplift one another. Mm -hmm. So here I was yesterday trying to gain some inspiration. I'm scrolling around and I come across your Instagram page. And I was so excited and (laughs) touched because when I stopped at your Instagram, you performed a solo concert in your courtyard. Yeah. And you were playing one of my most favorite songs in the whole entire universe, Ready for Love by India Ari. So just to kick off the conversation, what motivated you to go out into your courtyard and play?
1: So my neighbor across the hall, I came out one night and the lights were off. So we're already like, you know, is it zombies? Like what is it? What's going on, right? <laughs> so we're looking at each other like, dude, what's going on? And uh so long story short, he was just like, he's like, man, uh, on the group chat, they talking about doing it like they did in Italy, like stepping out on the balcony and just performing. And I was like, uh, he's like, yeah, that's cool. I was like, that sounds like a good idea. He's like, yeah, we just got to take your temperature before you come in here. So, that we <laughs> so I'm, I'm quarantined with two other people, uh, um, two other people, uh, my business partners. And so uh, shouts out to them, first of all, because they love to cook and they love to clean. And it's all jokes and productivity. I couldn't have asked for a better place to be, truly. And so um, my neighbor was like, yeah, we should do it. So the next day I was like, I think this will be a lot easier if I just go to the courtyard. Like, so we have our own group chat for the building. um, And so I just announced it like early in the day, like I'll be out there at 3.30. I started setting up at 3.30. By the time I played the first note, there were about maybe 50 people. And then it got to 100 that you could see. So there were also people who don't have balconies who could just open up the window and like listen. There was like animals watching. It was, it was a spectacle. And you could hear from the applause like that it was a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I just felt like, you know, what better way to, to breathe some life into the building than to just go down there and play. And I was able to address people and talk to them. And like, there were like 10 people with cameras. And so I met a bunch of videographers. Uh, one of the guys had a drone. So yeah, we just turned it into like a very communal thing and uh, I'm gonna do it once a week.
0: That is so amazing. What a way to bring people together, and I know that's one of your gifts, is yeah, connection yeah. and building community. So that really struck me. I mean, I feel as though we're being called and tested right now, and mm-hmm. so many people like yourself are rising to the occasion and really making something beautiful out of something so difficult,
1: so. Yeah, it was like, I, I could feel it. Like, at the beginning when I first started playing, I'm like, man, they are so dry. Like, just no energy, like none. I'm just like, oh, right. cause I'm, I'm cracking jokes. I'm like, I guess because I didn't give in to the panic, you know, I'm just like, I'm gonna keep my vibration high. But by the <laughs> time I got to the end though, it was like, it was almost like it went from black and white to color. It was
0: just like, it was beautiful. I'm on the wavelength in terms of trying to stay positive and you clearly embody and exude that in everything okay. you do. So, really oh, yeah. awesome. One of the, the first conversation pieces that I like to kick off with is how I became acquainted with my guests. Just a quick snapshot is that you and I met last October at an extraordinary event called A Calling, the Civil Rights Education, which was this outstanding intergenerational conversation with civil rights legends, Mm -hmm. Harry Belafonte, Merle Evers, um, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, and so many others bridging the civil rights movement to today and the young leaders who are on the front lines. So you and I met in that capacity and we met through your amazing manager who (laughs) came over and introduced herself, you to my mother, Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, one of the Mm -hmm. Little Rock Nine and myself. So it was a beautiful moment. We had the honor of hearing you play later on that evening, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it was just beautiful. So what brought you to the, the event?
1: You know, um, so I have like a a guardian angel, like in real life, like one that I know personally. Um, It's a lady by the name of Regina, um, and she used to work out of the Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles. And when I first met her, we clicked, uh, and she watched me handle a situation. And she says, I did it with such class and such grace that she knew right away that she just wanted to be a part of my life. Like, and that she was going to be a helpful person for me, you know, with her resources. So she's always been that, just continue to be that. And so she's like, hey, I've got this thing going on I heard about, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them your name in hopes that they will hire you to perform at this event, because, you know, it's just one of those events that you need to do. And so once I saw what it was all about, I was like, of course, and then it wasn't just that they wanted me to perform. they actually wanted my opinion on how the format should go musically, you know, how things should flow in the show. And uh, I took that with such honor, uh, and I felt so respected and so celebrated that the ideas that I gave them, they implemented. So they let me be a part of the vision. And so I curated all the music, you know, so it was, it was fun. It was great, you know, it was beautiful such a a very necessary conversation.
0: Wow, I, I really didn't know that you were so deeply involved in orchestrating the whole entire flow. But I just remember like seeing and feeling just like a level of warmth and elegance forever and ever and ever for my whole entire life. I have a visual and I can hear it. Dr. Henry Louis Gates getting up, speaking the words that he was presenting and your music in the background and just it was it was beautiful yeah So well, that's awesome it was dope one of the major pillars of my podcast is sankofa the west african philosophy mantra around going back in order to come forward i'm really intrigued by my guests personal journeys so can you tell me about where you grew up and anything you'd like to share about your family roots
1: okay definitely so um I grew up in the north suburbs of Chicago in a small town called Waukegan. And the most notable story is like how I actually started. You know, so I went to a a magnet elementary school where they were offering various fine arts. And so I saw the violin amongst other instruments that they were, it's like an exhibition. They were exhibit, like they were showing us a bunch of different instruments. Actually, I was drawn to the saxophone first, but you have to wait until you're in the fourth grade to play saxophone. Because they're like, you know, you still got to develop your lungs and all this stuff. I'm like, whatever. So I want to play something now. So I'm like, let me get a violin. So tell my parents. My parents bring the violin home. I run outside to get the violin out the car. bring it back in the house. Open it up. Put it up to my chin like the teacher was doing. And I was amazingly like, Terrible. Immediately. It was horrible. You know, it was like the, the worst thing I had ever heard. And I'm like, this, <laughs> this thing is broken. Please go get me a violin because this is not the way the teacher made it sound. So I quit immediately, right there. And so I went to my father and I said, yeah, Pops, man, I quit. He's like, oh, you you quit, huh? You want to quit? I'm like, yep, I quit. He's like, sure, you can quit. You just got to practice 15 minutes a day. So in my head, I was like, I'm quitting. And so I practiced every day so I could quit. (laughs) I practiced all the way till I got to college. And I remember I was sitting in a practice room. At this point, I was practicing 13 hours a day, like with the ensemble stuff and with my own personal practice uh, and plus my lessons and all that stuff. And I remember just standing there like, yo, I was quitting. Like, are you oh kidding God. me? Like, what? Like, I was quitting. I called my father and he laughed. Oh, he laughed. I'm like, bro, how long How long did you drag this joke, man? Like, dog. That's so awesome. drugged it. So... Yeah, at that point I was I was hooked. Yeah, so I mean that that's that's how I got started. And then that mixed with uh being in church. My first teacher, Miss Dudley. She was all heart, just all heart. Like I was technically better than her by the time I got to 5th grade, right? But her passion and her love was she gave me enough love to get through all of my bad teachers. That's what I'll say about her, you know. So I remember going to church and I actually just put up a post about um, how I learned amazing grace and how my style developed because I would listen to an organist named Richard Gibbs. He would play amazing grace before the preacher would preach. And this is when I learned about the ability for music to uh, settle a space to, to comfort to bring peace to bring serenity and to just create an environment that was conducive to like a settled spirit like really and so he would play amazing grace and he would play it in such a way that I was just so fascinated it's it's next level it's, it's unbelievable and so uh, I was trying to emulate his style so I was trying to play like he played on violin except it was organ so I remember the first time that I introduced grace notes and improvisation into one of my performances and it was like that mixed with the classical technique and then mixed with like hip hop and, you know, R&B and all of the other influences that I had that, like, fused this style to where, like, I literally can play anything on the violin.
0: Wow. So at what point did you fall in love with it?
1: Um, So I fell in love with violin in college. And it was when I was introduced to the classical technique. Like, so before then, like, I didn't have anyone, you know, taking me to, play with like the Chicago symphony or taking me around. I remember going to the state competitions and there were all these kids that were better than me. And I'm like, how, you know, I'm like, I'm the best, I'm the best at home. You know, like I'm better than all the people around me. Like, how are they better than me? Like this, made and it made no sense to me, like none. I just could not comprehend it. And so my skill level plateaued. And that's when I was like playing basketball and doing other things in, in, in high school. When I got to college, I actually had decided that I wanted to quit playing violin. And I feel, again, like I was tricked by the lady on campus who was walking around showing me all the different things that I could do. And she asked me, you know, what did you do in in high school? I was like, oh, you know, I I played basketball, varsity. Um, I I did debate. I played chess. I did volleyball. Because I'm like, I love, I'll tell you a reason why. Okay, let's just, I'll cut back to this. But uh, I always find myself picking up new things because as somebody who spends a lot of time or has spent a lot of time in the practice room, you are practicing perfection. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So you, you don't leave that in the practice room though. You go out of the practice room and then everything is like perfection, perfection, perfection. And that becomes so like arduous at times. So I find myself having to do things I have no clue about. So I pick up a lot of things. And since I have the discipline to stick with it, like I get good at a lot of things. My friends make fun of me all the time. They're like, I bet you can't do this though. I bet you like dude, yeah, you know if I put my mind to it, it's a rap. But <laughs> so she's walking me around, she's showing me different things, and I wanted to be a businessman. I'm like, I'm gonna figure, I wanna do business. And she says, Well, you know, you can I said, Oh, I also said, and I was the concert master in the orchestra. She's like, concert master, like violinist. I'm like, Yeah. She's like, Oh, you could do music and business. Right? I'm like, oh, okay, cool. She's like, but you have to try out for one of the ensembles and you have to get in. So the, the audition was that day. So picked the violin up, went and did the audition, made it into the smaller orchestra and into the bigger orchestra. And I was then told that I had to take lessons with the professor, the violin professor, And literally it opened my eyes because I'm like, I didn't even know that this technique thing was a thing. And so as I'm doing like the scales and I'm learning all these different arpeggios and I'm finding out that there are notes way up here on the fingerboard. Like, so I'm I'm really like now I'm intrigued because now I'm listening to, you know, he he had opened my my mind and my, my palate basically to what it was supposed to sound like on like the highest level. And so I'm like, well, now I have access to that. Oh, I'm on this. And so uh, it was that mixed with my little brother, right? So my little brother was like the greatest hater of all. Like, so, (laughs) so at least in my eyes, right?
0: Motivation. Yeah,
1: so one day I was practicing, because that's all I did was practice. He he came into my room, uh, because we lived together at a certain point in college. And he says, man, you sound sound good, man. You're getting good. And I was like, who you talking to? It was under me, and it was like that moment mixed with the technique. It was just like it was this love affair, you know that that began to like bud, and I started to see it, and it was just like all right, I'm in, you know, and no turning back. And so, I was practicing super hard, and you know, it just developed truly.
0: I love the way you describe it. Like, kind of, there were levels to your understanding once you were exposed to kind of the the vastness now that you saw the possibilities. I don't know why I think in analogies, and I feel like that's just such a beautiful analogy for your journey, but also for anyone's journey in terms of life. So I'm also intrigued by just looking at dreams and callings and just kind of things that we tried to run away from, but you keep getting pulled back.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was also a point in college where um, I had a mentor on campus. He said, there's gonna be a time when you actually Put the violin down. He's like, just pick it back up. Now, he told me this, like, as a freshman. And then by, like, my junior year, it happened. What happened this time was this was totally different from any other time I put it down. Because at this point, I was having a difficult time differentiating who I was with the violin from who I was without it. Like, who am I as a man as opposed to who am I as Lee England Jr., the violinist that everybody knows? You know? And so that was like... That was something I had to figure out, you know, and I I, honestly, I found myself in church. You know, my father had passed uh, while I was in college and it was just like, you know, well, what is this? You know, and the one thing that I learned was that the violin is not the instrument. Like I'm the instrument. And so the violin is more like uh, like a, a drill bit. You know, like I'm, if I'm a drill, then it's like just one drill bit and then something else is a different drill bit and this is for this. So anything in my hands at this point just is refined for whatever objective it is that I'm trying to get to. But now I don't look at it as this defines me. You know, I look at it as this is a part of who I am, but it doesn't define me anymore. And it's like once I like, realized that I came back to the violence so much stronger. Because now it's like, this is just an, a part of me. This is an expression and I can hear, you know, here it is without feeling like it was the only thing that I had to offer.
0: That is so profound. It reminds me of Oprah's book, The Path Made Clear. And she speaks to a lot of thought leaders and spiritual leaders about being in the flow
1: mm-hmm. and
0: kind of being in a zone. And she speaks to artists and Deepak Chopra to Jay-Z and it's very similar. What an amazing experience to have because it's like that adversity that allows us to look in the mirror and Sometimes we don't get that. You know what I mean? And so I also hear in your journey It's almost like these whispers or these like people in your life that are helping to guide you along the way
1: Yeah, um just to speak of like flow state, I, mean, I, I love that, that idea, you know, um, but one thing that I also learned in that time was that um, the greatest gift that I have is my mind, you know, and my spirit, you know, like fruits of the spirit actually, you know, so it was like, um, like mentally I just understand that um, it doesn't matter you know, what it is that I'm doing. You know, like whatever it is, it's going to be, it's going to be fine. So like you said, there's been whispers there. I remember one time when I was younger, a guy said to me, everything that you see was once an idea. So why don't you just manifest your ideas and live your dreams? Right. And I was like, wow, like that was very profound. And so I like, uh, you know, I, I pride myself in being someone that if you're dropping jewels around me, I'm going to pick them up. You know, and so I held on to that one. You know, like, if I see, oh, you dropped the jewel, bro, let me get that. You ain't gonna leave that on the ground. Nah, nah, I got that. <laughs>
0: That's so you know? great.
1: So it's like, there's been, there's been monumental points that I can actually point to in my life where, you know, it really, like, something or someone made a difference with me. Um, and out of gratitude, I mean, it's a gift to be able to hear it, you know. And so I remember one time in high school before I got ready to go to college, I was really searching, like, trying to figure out life. And I remember I was walking and I wrote on a piece of notebook paper, who am I? I didn't know what to put after that. And that literally, I think that opened me up to be able to hear what other people had to say. Because I mean, I remember certain quotes, like when I was, uh, when I turned 19, when I was in college, I had a friend of mine who said, never be miseducated. It's like, it's better to be ignorant than to be like right at the wrong thing, (laughs) you know? I'm like, so wow. And this is like my freshman year in college. So he's like saying that type of thing made me go to the library. You know, like I was spending all my time in the library, not listening to nobody. (laughs) Became very rebellious, like intellectually, you know, to the point where it was like my professors, they had a hard time with me because I wouldn't take what they said at face value. I'm like, you're not even an expert. Like, I read the book that you talking about, I read our textbook, and then I read 10 more books just like it. And I wrote down all my thoughts. What you want to do? Like, I'm paying for this? You got to give me something? So, I, yeah. Yeah, I was a handful in college.
0: Can you identify where that curiosity, eagerness, excitement, and elevated consciousness came from? Was it from your family? Can you identify kind of where that came from?
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that's just one of those gifts. You know, that's just one of those things. Because it's like, None of my friends were like that, not all of them. But I always, I don't know, I, I, I also think that, you know, the things that my father, that I learned from my father, because I was very observant of my father, like very observant, you know? And one thing that he did that I feel was the greatest gift he could give me was he cried in front of me one time, you know? Like in a world where you're supposed to be tough, and my father was tough, you know, he was Superman. Uh, he cried in front of me and you know, he was telling me stories about, um, so my older brother and older sister, our half brother, half sister. And he was talking about how when he came into their lives, he was the bad guy, you know, and how it just broke his heart that they were teaching the, the children to like hate him, you know, and so he was, he had broke down and he was just like, you better not tell anybody. So, you know, I, I don't know if he, you know, shouts out, he gonna be mad about this, but I've been telling everybody because I feel like it was a, uh, the greatest gift he gave me was to be able to be vulnerable you know so if i don't know a thing i'm not going to sit there quietly and suffer <laughs> like i'm going to speak up like yo teach me you know what i'm saying i'm i'm so eager to learn um, and then you know going to college that really opened my eyes to the fact that nobody's going to do it for you like nobody's going to teach you like you're expected to do it yourself and it's like okay well if, if i have to count on me then I, i'm going to win you know like that's all it is to it
0: That's awesome. I tried to organize kind of my thoughts in sequential order, like big monumental things that happen in your life. Like it seems as though they happen every day (laughs) or at every turn. But I'd like to hear your journey from playing in high school, then playing in college, and then MTV's P Diddy's making of the band. Like what is the bridge from playing in college to that moment in your life?
1: Okay, so... I'm extremely competitive, right? Extremely competitive, as you heard in the beginning. Like, how are they better than me, you know? Just so competitive. So there was one big moment that led up to that. And that was, before I graduated from college, like, it had to have been like my senior year or something in there. But no, it wasn't, it wasn't. But there was a competition on campus. There was a concerto competition, and then there was a a talent show off campus. And so the talent show off campus, uh, long story short, uh, I won that, it was a winner takes all. And it was right around the time that Mary Ben Ariha came out. And so I had kind of took some thing. I gleaned some things from her in my show. And it was the first time that I actually played an R&B song like to the public. And it was If I Ain't Got You by Alicia Keys. So this all like, you know, it's a huge circle how this all comes together. So I won that and I was like, I'm gonna win this concerto competition too. I won that. When I got out of college, I said, I understood that all I needed to do was get in front of people. So I had this, I would rather ask for forgiveness than permission thing, uh, and I literally, like, me and my guy, we just, we just bum rush places. Like, who bum rushes a place with a violin, right? If you imagine that, like, we were going to the top clubs in Chicago, and we would go early, and we would know who was gonna be DJing that night. So I had this DJ mix, because that's what I, I had created. And we were going to all the clubs early. And if we could get past the bouncer, it was good, right? So we get past the bouncer, I would go straight to the DJ to where the turntable's at, and I'd be like, yo, where the sound guy at, man? Somebody plug me up, man. I'm supposed to be performing here. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm the opening act. That was my thing. I'm the opening act. So the, the sound guy would be like, what? Like, who are you? I'd be like, yo, whoever the artist was, man, they sent me ahead because I got all this stuff. Like, why would I bring all this stuff, man? Like, Bro, come on. Like, who does that? Plug me up, here go my C D and 10 minutes before the act comes on, that's when I'm supposed to perform. He's like, All right, you just worked that out with the DJ. So he'll plug me up, I do sound check, and then I would just go and enjoy the night. And then like 10 minutes or so before the main act was supposed to go on, I run up there real quick, get my violin out because I'm already now they know me because they remember from sound check. I tell the DJ, like, yo, um, I'm supposed to go on right now. So they'd be like, okay <laughs> and they would play the cd and i would i literally was tearing these clubs down like oh that's how i that's how i made my name in chicago right so
0: everybody was kind of like okay this person must have brought him in but this but you just discombobulated everybody yeah, that's yeah. genius
1: yeah 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 <laughs> I, I was like y'all i just know that people need to hear me so mm-hmm. i'm doing that all around the city and i ended up I ended up on stage with Stevie Wonder doing this type of thing.
0: Wait, you have to tell me the story behind that. Yeah.
1: Okay, so Saturday mornings when I was in college when I would come back home, I would do uh, Jesse Jackson's uh, operation push. I would do his like broadcast, you know, he had the international broadcast on the South Side. So I would do that and then one day he says, Oh, Lee England Jr., he's our resident violinist. I said resident violinist. I said don't. Residential musicians get paid. I was like, "Oh, is that hold on, man. Like whatever, bro. Cool." So, it was it was like in June or July when he said that. And so, July 4th came around and this was the year that Stevie Wonder did The Taste of Chicago. So, Jesse's having this big like awards kind of thing, right? And Stevie's supposed to be there. Now, I didn't know this, and I didn't get an invite either. But I said, he said, resident violinist, I feel like I should be able to go. So I did the same thing. We just showed up, got past security, got all the way to the stage. You know, some of the musicians, they knew me, but they're just like, what are you doing here? So I just didn't, I just make no eye contact. It was just like, yo, plug me up, bro. Same thing, plug me in, I'm supposed to be playing. So as the night progressed, you know, I just went on stage like I was supposed to be there. So it was rumors that Stevie wasn't going to make it. And then all of a sudden in the middle of the evening, he shows up and everybody's like, Oh, he's he's here. So he's literally walking down to the center aisle. He walks onto the stage and everybody's like yelling out, you know, all of his hits that they want to hear. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do that tonight. He's like, "Uh, I'm going to do one of my favorite songs. And it was a gospel song uh, called Falling in Love with Jesus. Now at the time, this was my jam. Like, I'm like, Oh, we good. Right. So... On those Saturday mornings when Jesse would see me, like during his broadcast, he would see me from across the stage and he would point to me and he would tell me to come to the, to the main podium and like play a solo or play with the choir or whatever. So much like days before, he looks up, he sees me and Stevie's like singing. and He's like, gives me the look. I said, oh, it's going down. So Stevie is singing. He walks up to Stevie and he's whispering in his ear and he says something. So he's like, you got it. And so I ended up soloing with Stevie. He's playing harmonica. We're going back and forth. It was crazy. It was crazy, right? So that was my whole thing about being in Chicago. At the end of that summer, I ended up getting a teaching job at one of the public schools. And I remember sitting down with the principal. And he says, um, so who are you? And I started to tell him. I'm like, yeah. He's like, and I'm like, the last thing I did was perform with Stevie Wonder. And he was like, um, hold on he makes a phone call like fact check this, <laughs> whoever he talked to they said like yeah that's, that's the dude right. So he gives me the job and he says well what's going to happen if two or three months from now Stevie calls you and he wants to take you on tour, and he said wait before you answer that let me tell you that if the governor of Illinois calls me I'm leaving, I'm going down to Springfield and I'm going to go and take a bigger position I'm out of here so moves like this like oh okay got you got you I see you cool say less he's like we really just he's like I want you to be a role model for the kids they need to see you you know they don't see enough male teachers one and then like you're like a guy guy like can you play and you know like they're gonna love you just be in the building bro so that was that was like life affirming and life challenging at the same time because them little kids you know when the days are good it's just like, oh my God, this is like my purpose. And when the days are bad, it's like.
0: Proud <laughs> it's like, oh. yeah.
1: So this is all leading up to how I got to the, the making this band audition, right? So this is just a little side note. When I went in to teach the kids, I told the teachers, don't tell them that I got the job. I said, just tell them that they're coming to uh, a, uh, a concert, like uh, in the auditorium, like, you know, just bring them downstairs to the altar. Just just tell them that they're gonna hear you know this violinist. And so I had wrote up this script. So I would have the teachers introduce me. I would play that same DJ mix, you know, top forty joints, and the kids going crazy, right? And so then when I was finished playing the script, the teacher would say, "So apparently you can play anything that somebody can hum or sing." And I was like, "Yeah, I, I can do that." So I started putting all the little kids to the test. So in my mind. I'm looking to see which ones are outspoken, which ones got a little talent, which ones to sing, um, and so I play all of the songs that they are talking about. I got—I mean, all of them, every single one. I'm—I got it right, and they just like in awe. Like I can't—like who is this dude, right? And this is before you have like you know the the inflow of so many violinists everywhere, and so uh, I said, "Yo, I just graduated, and I really want to be in the schools more. I'm just here volunteering today." Um, But what would y'all think if I was your music teacher, right? And then they just, they lose it, right? And so I'm like, like, this is what you got to do. I was like, you got to tell the principal, tell the teachers, tell your parents, tell anybody that would tell the custodian. I don't care. You know what I'm saying? Tell everybody that you want me to be your music teacher and maybe I can get a job here, right? And so I did this for a week, all of the classes. And it was um, preschoolers all the way through sixth graders and then eighth graders. So when the next week came, I'm like, y'all did it. Like, I'm the music teacher, right? So I had him. I had him. I had him.
0: Aww, that is I had so him cute. immediately.
1: Right? Had him immediately. So every day when I got up though, when I was going to work, I would call the radio station because I'm like, I want to perform at what was called the Big Jam, which is at the United Center, uh, where they just bring in all of their big artists to come to Chicago. That's like the one of the ultimate you know venues to be at so I call every morning trying to get to somebody who can actually put me on the stage and uh finally after like weeks and weeks of doing this I finally get to the dude who's like yeah I'm the program director and he says uh he says yeah you know you know I'll call you I said wait before you even get to that I need I gotta play for you right now like, so I played for him over the phone, like right there, like boom, boom, boom. He's like, oh man, you're really good. He's like, I'm gonna call you. And then he didn't call, right? So I was already under the, the bum rush mentality. Like, you ain't called me, I'm gonna come find you. So I went to the radio station. It's a huge building, security everywhere. And it was like, this one, MySpace was like out. And so the only picture that I had of this dude was literally like this big, <laughs> right? So I'm like, every black person that walks through here, I'm like, are you this dude? Are you this dude? Are you this? Nobody. I seen a DJ that I knew from you know, my exploits in Chicago. He, he worked at the station. He's like, yeah, I know him. If I see him, I tell him to come down and get you. He's like, um, so we finally see dude. And I'm like, are you the dude? He's like, yeah. So he brings us up to his office. We have a four hour meeting in his office because he never called but i didn't care it didn't matter at this point i just need to get inside man put me on the show man that's all i know so he didn't end up putting me on that show but he put me on another show Um, it was like a whispers in the dark event with trey songs i opened up tore the place down he was like hey i want you to come and perform for me and my wife for our one year anniversary right I'm like, cool, got you. So I'm hiding in the house in the dark. They come in, I start playing at last. Beautiful. After I did that, I talked to him and I was like, yo, there was another program director who had an event that was like in Philly or something around my birthday. I said, I'm going to go to that. I was like, or should I do the making this band auditions? And he was like, definitely go to the auditions, dude. I got you. He was like, I'll put in a word. So with his word, I woke up. The day after my birthday, it was March 16th, I had been out partying so I didn't get up early like I expected to. I go and I get in line at the back of the line, I see all of my friends who played other instruments because they weren't looking for violin. they weren't looking for any auxiliary instruments. They just wanted drums, keys, bass, guitar, electric guitar, uh, piano and background vocals. So my friends that saw me, they're like, what are you doing here? Like
0: <laughs> you're like, do you know me? <laughs>
1: we know that you know that you're not supposed to be here. Why are you here? So they like, he must know something, right? So I go to the back of the line. There's a security guard that I knew from <laughs> at the back of the line who was like, "What you doing here?" I'm like, "Man, I'm I'm auditioning like everybody else." He like, "All right, hold on." So he comes back like 15 minutes later, jumps me clear, smooth to the top of the line.
0: Nice.
1: Like where you're signing in at, and you are signing in. They're like. Um, so what do you do? I'm like, I play violin and like, we're not taking any violins. I said, that's cool. Cause I sing. <laughs> so my plan was to get in the room, open the violin up real quick and just start playing, you know, <laughs> so I call my manager. He, he runs down there cause he had come to my house earlier in the day. I was asleep. He didn't wake me up. So I called him like come back. I need you now. So he gets there, he's talking to the producers and they finally take a chance on me and let me come in. So they actually bring me out of the line, bring me in VIP, they say warm up, take your time. I'm like, cool, cause I hadn't learned none of these songs. Like, <laughs> and uh, I sat down, I warmed up, I went in the bathroom, I learned one of the songs, went into the audition and as soon as I, I mean, all the way up, what are you doing when I'm looking for violinists? I'm like, talk to the last person that I just talked to, just, they know, they know, they know, they know, they know. So when I finally walk in the room, the guy says, oh, he got a violin. He says, "Uh, do you listen to hip hop? And I, I just laughed it off. I was like, of course. He's like, all right, so let's see what you got. And so I started playing. It was American Boy. I'm playing the, the lead line. And before I could even get to the chorus, they just stand up and start clapping. And so it was like a done deal. So after that, it was just... A smooth sail because there was no other auxiliary instruments to compete with so I'm in the house chilling and this is like right when reality shows started coming out and so they were expecting us to be in there fighting and doing all kind of stuff but who was I gonna fight
0: you know what I'm <laughs> i had an interview with you and you said they called you Langston
1: yeah <laughs> so,
0: so Langston he, who, Langston, who? <laughs>
1: Langston Hughes right because That's
0: what I thought. <laughs> yeah
1: because all I was doing in the house was winning the challenges that they were giving me. I was cooking and I was always in the hammock, writing and reading. And I'm getting paid to do it. So every, every time they was looking for me, they're like, where's Lee? You mean Langston? Like he's out writing poetry and reading books, you know, chilling while we in here losing our minds and panicking. I'm like, yeah, man. So that was a very fun time for me. Like,
0: wow. So what came out of that experience?
1: So as soon as I did that, when I got back to Chicago, I was doing gigs. And you know, at this point, I mean like, I ended up going on tour with, uh, with an artist who had a hit at the time. So we're going all around the, the, the map. And he literally, when he saw me, I opened for him. And he was just like, okay, dude, I need you to come on tour. I need you to come record with me. And I need you to do like your own five minute set during the show, like while I go and take a break. It's like, cool. So as we're going around to all these cities, that five minutes, like, I'm like, I don't know if you know, like, this five minutes, bro, I'm about to, whoo, I'm about to go nuts in this five, that's all, like, five minutes? I'm about to go crazy. So that's all I needed. Five minutes? Yeah, this is, this is easy. So I was still in shows, you know, just, and we ended up getting in front of Michael Jordan.
0: I'm so excited to hear the story. One quick clarifying question that I should have asked, which is, Can you just paint a picture? Because I mean, from a viewer's standpoint, I remember making the band. But if you can just refresh me on like the premise. Yeah. And then kind of like the outcome.
1: Yeah. So the premise that Diddy had was that he was going to build his own band that he could take on tour with him for his album Last Train to Paris. So it was going good, like, you know, smooth sailing. You know, he's coming in, he's popping in, we're doing the show. And when it came time for the show to finish, I got cut, right? Because I, I figured they just didn't know what to do with me. Like, whatever. So it wasn't really a big deal. Um, but And then the show went on for two weeks. So when it came back on, it was like kind of the end. And right around that time, that's when Jay-Z dropped Death of Auto-Tune. And Diddy's whole album was Auto-Tune. So he was just like, "Duh, scrapped the whole project. Scrapped the whole idea. The band, we're not going nowhere. Nobody won <laughs> nothing. Yes, it was, it was a done deal.
0: I just remember there was no album, but I didn't know why.
1: <laughs> that was why. Jay-Z murdered it. Like he, <laughs> yep. There went Diddy's whole album. Oh dear. I mean, we, there's a camaraderie amongst the musicians that were there. Like, mm-hmm. oh my God, now that's such a beautiful thing. Like all of the musicians that were on there have gone on to do spectacular things. Like just to name drop a few, like Derek Dixie uh, was the music director for uh, Bay Cello. He's a drummer. Joy's a drummer, she plays for Beyonce. Um, the dude Brackett, he plays for Lady Gaga. Uh, the bass player for Bruno Mars, you know, like.
0: Yeah, everyone went on to do amazing things.
1: Yeah, truly. So my thing was, uh, what's crazy is that the, the day that I met Michael Jordan was also the day of auditions for Lady Gaga. So it was one or the other. And they had called me like, dude, you need to get here to do this audition. She's looking for a violinist and she'll do, I'm the MD, come on.
0: At that point in time, did you already have management? Or just kind of? I didn't. Okay. It
1: was like, my, it, was my, it was my brother-in-law. So we were, we were growing together,
0: basically. Right.
1: Yeah, so we, I, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm picking MJ over Lady Gaga all day long, right? And so not knowing that there was any outcomes to come of it, um, but I had already had some conversations with the brand in Chicago, because when they saw me, they're just like, dude, MJ needs to see you. That's what they kept saying. And they brought me to the headquarters in Chicago. I'll never forget. And we sat down and we talked, you know, they asked me my vision and different ideas that I had. And then they gave me every piece of apparel that was in this room. I'm talking about, they took socks off the mannequins. Like, (laughs) like, dude, take all of this. I mean, we had 12 of the biggest Jordan bats I could ever see, like walking down the street. It was heavy. I'm like, dude, this is crazy. (laughs) That's hilarious. So when I actually did perform for MJ, I did my five minutes, and when I got off stage, I literally had devastated this crowd like I had done all over the United States. And the first person I see is Carmelo Anthony and Lala, and they're just like, "Yo, man, we want you for the wedding." Da 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 da. Chris Paul was next to them. He's like, "Man, I want you for this, this, and this." Amara Shah, just showing love, and then it comes to MJ. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> he's like, uh, he's like, man, I'm going to take care of you, man. I don't know what that means about it, but it sounds good, you know what I'm saying? So he ended up signing me to the brand like a week later, not knowing anything about me, not knowing that I lived in Chicago, and not knowing that I grew up, you know what I'm saying, MJ down the street, you know? like, So that began what opened my entire career up into a space where if the Jordan brand wasn't directly involved with me being a part of whatever it was the affiliation got me in the door so all of the things up to like quincy jones and uh regina the lady i was talking about earlier like how i even got this event you know it all comes full circle to the jordan brand and to like the tenacity to just just push the limits you know not really just sit and wait for somebody to come find me but make myself visible you know like i think that that's a yeah, that's the first time I said that, but that's actually it, you know, not not sitting and waiting at the door for an opportunity to knock. Just build doors. <laughs>
0: oh, bring in your whole construction company. Yes. Yeah. Like, wow, you totally have blown my mind in that regard. Like, yeah. that move where you go in and tell the DJ you're here to play, like, that is brilliant.
1: Yeah, that was it, man.
0: Wow.
1: You know, one thing that I, I never had issue with was believing in myself I always knew like and I've so I've lived a life on the edge on the verge of like having it all and at the same time the work that I've done most recently has allowed me to see that I didn't necessarily believe in myself like I thought I did like it's a difference at this point with me playing violin because it's not a belief anymore I know you know I know when I get on stage, what I do, I know. But the belief comes from me being afraid to totally express myself, um, which is what you're seeing now more of is with me releasing music where I'm singing and producing and doing all the stuff. That's now that I'm there, like believing in that, it's just a matter of time before everyone catches on to what I already know because the music that I'm creating is crazy like it's something else, like it is something different. Um, yeah, so that's that's like where I'm at now, but.
0: You sent me a video or a link to one of your multimedia experiences that included all types of beautiful imagery and music and visuals and is so powerful. So I can only imagine. So with the Jordan brand, Michael Jordan offered you an endorsement that made you the first non-athlete to be sponsored by Jordan?
1: The first non-athlete and violinist. I mean, I, so there was another guy, Mike Phillips, but I don't know if he was signed or whatever, cause like he's been a part of the brand forever. So it's like, yeah, first violinist to be- I mean, that's
0: huge, my goodness. So like, what's the experience of being connected with such a colossal brand?
1: Man, th- that's a family. It's a family. and Everybody that works for the Jordan brand, they're like happy people. <laughs> like they're happy people. Like, I mean, if you imagine, like MJ has hired, he brings in his friends and his family, you know, first he takes care of them, like out the gate. There's no question. So to see all of his childhood friends in positions of authority, you know, it just, it, there's longevity there, you know, and it's, you know, one thing that me and my, my, my first manager said was like this is a marathon let's not get in and just think that it's just a one-off like I haven't had a contract with them in like nine years but for 10 years I've been family you know so I, I the last thing that I did was I I performed at um, Jeffrey Jordan's wedding in the Bahamas you know like I was at the Jordan brand parties and you know like it's family at this point like I do all of uh, Chris Paul's charity events, all of them, like from when he was with uh, New Orleans, you know, when he was doing shoe releases, I was doing D Wade shoe releases. I remember going to the fountain blue with D Wade and performing at his shoe release party uh, earlier in the night, you know, uh, man, I,
0: That is amazing. I'm so happy to hear that. Because yeah. sometimes you have this beautiful image of like a brand or uh, I don't even know the word that I'm trying to think of. But an empire, that's what I'm trying to say. And then behind the scenes, it's not always the case. So I'm so happy to hear that your experience has been like, you've been like embraced as family. That's wonderful. It's been
1: been love, man. I mean, so I remember when I grew up, I wasn't getting Jordans, you know, like we wasn't, nobody was buying Jordans, but my first pair of Jordans was a pair of team Jordans. You know, it wasn't even like actual Jordans. It was just cause the whole team had them. And I remember, being salty about it, right? And I used to be like, you know what? I don't even want Jordans. I'm going to get 23s on my Bentley. That's what I kept saying. I'm going to get 23s on my Bentley. That's going to be my Jordans bow right? Like, I ain't paying for Jordans. And what's crazy is, is I still haven't paid for Jordans. <laughs>
0: Hello. <laughs> and I
1: have, I've given away more Jordans than I have. And I have a lot.
0: That is you know? so cool. Yeah. So I'm going to try to, condense your resume, your experience, your journey is so impressive. You've performed for George Lucas, Elton John, Lady Gaga, Mm -hmm. and the list goes on and on, Chance the Rapper. You performed with Alicia Keys and her son. You work with Quincy Jones. What is one moment that really just kind of gave you pause? Because when you're in that world and that's your reality, sometimes it just becomes your reality. But what Mm -hmm. is a moment that you can think of that really had you say, wow?
1: Mm, There's a lot, right? But the one, I mean, you know, me and Quincy Jones, yeah. uh, What else was I thinking about? Well, the one that really hit me was I was really struggling uh, in New York. And I remember I got booked to do a show for Bono right and his charity right yeah so it just gets gets crazy and so i met alicia keys there right and i remember i told you earlier that i won the talent show with you know if i ain't got you like that was like the song that i played so i was actually able to tell her that story and then play for her and then just get her feedback and like that was crazy and i remember i had brought a videographer with me and i was like yo like one thing you have to know about being in this room is that if you're in this room, consider yourself somebody that should be in the room. This isn't just happenstance and this isn't background music. You know, like you, this was an invitation because I belong here. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, his mind was blown because the guy's house we were at, like, had Warhols and Picassos and all this kind of stuff, right? So it was Bono in New York. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody was there, right? So. That was crazy, but there's one, the only other time that tops that is having to tell my friends, I was sitting on Quincy Jones's couch, playing my music for him, eating sherbet ice cream, and, uh, <laughs> and David Blaine shows up, and does card tricks for an hour.
0: You can't make this up, you can't, can't. make can't,
1: <laughs> so it's like to just, when I sit and think about all the things that I've done, I'm like, yo, and what's crazy is it's just the beginning because I'm about to like really, really let my hands go on these things that I have nurtured for like 10 years at least. So when the music comes out, like when this project comes out, it's called a guidebook for a gentleman. It's dumb, it's dumb.
0: So when can we hear it?
1: I released a single on March 20th.
0: Okay, I need to get with the program. So (laughs) I released
1: a single um, and that's really, that was just for me to like, See what it feels like. Just let it go. Like, it's done. Let it go. But the rest of the album uh, is being mixed and mastered right now. So we're looking at, like, some release dates uh, here in the next couple of months.
0: Well, for a million reasons, I hope things come back to a healthy state very soon. And I'm sure that you're going to have a huge celebration.
1: Yes. So I've got uh, Ebony Magazine. They want to put on my listening party here in New York. Uh, Moet Hennessy wants to, you know, be a part of it. Like, it's a lot of moving parts, and I'm so excited. I don't know what to do with myself. Like, (laughs) that's why I'm able to go and just play in the courtyard.
0: So happy for you. This is amazing. Switching gears a tad as we're making our way to the finish line, can you give me a snapshot of your nonprofit, Love Notes LLC? And also, one other thing that I want to hear from you on is what comes to mind when I say representation in terms of you being a black violinist and being in educational settings and working with young people in particular young people of color what does representation mean and stand for for you
1: mm-hmm. my nonprofit, I kind of like put it to the side for a minute just so that I can focus on this project until I have the, the money to pay somebody to like run it daily. But what I'm actually doing with it is uh, I have managed a partnership with Carnegie Hall.
0: I mean, it makes all the sense in the world.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's 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 just a manifestation of so many things like we have. We didn't even talk about street performing, Right. Um, But uh, so I have a partnership with Carnegie Hall and they are just so they're sold on me. Like, I have learned to just be self-expressed in who I am, and this is before they hear the music. So Carnegie Hall, being a century-old classical music institution, they also respect the movements of music outside of the classical realm. And what they were looking for, they're like, how do we bridge classical music with the stuff that's going on outside of that? And I was like, me. I was like, I live there. I was like, I live there. I live there. Like, I literally... Embedded in classical music, embedded in culture. Like, so this is who I am. And so what I'm actually doing is uh, giving students the opportunity, and not just students, but musicians, period, the opportunity to realize that there are so many ways to make money as a musician. Because I do not believe the adage of uh, being a starving artist. So that just, that's just ridiculous. I like, because if artists were creating out of abundance, And not uh, out of scarcity, they would create music that heals and gives, like, the cure, as opposed to creating music that diagnoses. That's what we need. It's like, because if you have abundance, then you begin to look for ways to give. You look for, man, if I got it already, now I can actually be of service and be of value to someone instead of coming around like, I need, I need, I need. Because if it's always I need, then you're always taking you know so that's one aspect of it and then as far as representation goes I know for myself that all I have to do is see it like oh so there was a violinist uh, Gerald Damien way back when That was the only violin CD that I had I was I could play it forwards and backwards like right? but just knowing that it's possible you know that's, that's just it you know uh, I, I do a lot of talks with like high school students that's actually where I'm starting to like I feel like that's a nice place for me to be I was with high school students who are in the fine arts and just letting them know like you know you actually can do it you know like it actually is there for you like being able to be on the forefront of inspiring the next generation of musicians it's like I do it now but it's one thing to believe that I'm doing it and the other thing is to actually be doing it so I find myself Every chance that I get getting in front of, you know, the students, if it's just to tell my story, you know, they love the story about uh, uh, not asking for uh, uh, permission, but asking for forgiveness, you know, every little kid got a rebel in them. So I'm like, oh, like, do it till it don't work, you know, like, but you have to try things, you know, I get a lot of questions from them about purpose and how did you find out what you wanted to do, I tried everything, you know, it's easier to, to figure out what you don't like. Then it is sometimes to figure out what you do like. So try everything. It's easy to, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. Oh, I like that. So then you just follow it, you know, and then see where it goes. So, I mean, I love us. And I, you know, I know we're like the purveyors of culture. So to be able to give these musicians something that I didn't have, which is like a, a role model, you know, it's like, there it is, you know, take it. Take it, glean, glean from it. You know, you don't have to be me, but there are things that I learned that do work. So, you know, so that's, that's really the mission It's just to inspire them, uh, to instruct them and then to get them some instruments. So we're always raising money for that.
0: Very important. You're yeah. like such a bright beacon. This is amazing. And I'm so excited for our listeners to hear from you. My last question, Lee, what are the roots of your spirit?
1: The roots of my spirit... Mm. I would say gratitude um, love uh, my mama my father um, and family and bringing people together
0: thank you so much
1: I appreciate it I appreciate the opportunity
2: Mm. I fell in love with your attitude your feisty waist, the way your body moves, yeah And now that I can see I fell in love with the wrong thing oh. And I, I know just what you're thinking Why it take me so long Because when I first saw you I thought you could do, no, you could do. no wrong thing. I was a fish out of water A boat that would that oh. would sail oh. Like a lens out of focus I couldn't see for myself And it was wrong of me wrong, to, me to, judge wrong to, me. to judge you To judge you yeah, yeah. How wrongfully I Was too abusive of you I, I accused you of love to me